What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? Hero Bread serves up 0 to 1 grams of net carbs, 5 to 11 grams of protein, and high fiber in every delicious serving. Made with natural ingredients, Hero Bread supports gut health, promotes weight management, and helps maintain blood sugar. Hero also drops other limited edition ultra-low net carb goodies like rich, flaky croissants and buttery brioche slider rolls. Head to Hero.co to shop today. Hey everybody, how's it going? Welcome back to the Our World Cup series on the 90 Min podcast feed. Uh, I'm your host, Harry Simiu, and on this edition, we're going to be looking back to the 2018 World Cup, the most recent of this uh, fantastic tournament. And I'm delighted to say that with me to take a trip down memory lane are the brilliant. First up, Andy Headspeeth. How are you? Hi, mate. Yeah, I'm very good. Delighted to be back again. Good to have you, my friend. Uh, we're also joined by Quinton Jesp. Uh, how are you, sir? Hey, guys. Uh, all good. Thanks for having me. Uh, the pleasure is all ours, and I'm sure you're looking forward to this one uh, in particular. Also, uh, the man behind the series, the brains behind the series, Mr. Jack Gallagher. Uh, Jack, welcome back to your own podcast. How you doing? Thanks for having me. Last episode. Um, we'll be glad to get finished for recording, and hopefully people enjoy them. Yes, I'm sure they will. Okay, let's dive into it. Let's uh, touch on what the general world landscape was at the time. Donald Trump was the US president. Theresa May was the UK prime minister. Harry and Meghan had their royal wedding. The Incredibles 2 was the number one movie in the world. And One Kiss by Dua Lipa and Calvin Harris was the UK number one, the biggest selling song of the year. In terms of the footballing landscape, Real Madrid had beaten Liverpool in the Champions League final. Salah was injured. Bale scored a stunning overhead kick. Uh, overhead kick, And uh, Loris was terrible. A fun one all round. Atletico Madrid beat Marseille 3-0 in the Europa League final, courtesy of Antoine Griezmann's stunning performance. And domestically, Manchester City won the Premier League with 100 points. Salah picked up the PFA Player of the Year award and the Golden Boot, thanks to scoring 32 goals in the Premier League. Barcelona won La Liga, well, because Messi was brilliant and scored 34 league goals. So as Jack mentioned, this is the last episode of the series. So we're not going that far back in time. Uh, so Andy, what were you doing in 2018? <laughs> well, I was actually there for the tournament. So I spent six weeks in Moscow. So And I was working with uh, Budweiser as part of their uh, man of the match campaign, giving out the awards and asking the, the post-match questions to the winners. Uh, so my memories are mainly of being in a hotel room, trying to work out who the man of the match was going to be, and then frantically writing down questions that they could answer in the flash zone after the game. So it was kind of a, a more stressful than relaxing experience. But uh, yeah, it was it was good fun to be to be there. And it was a really, really good World Cup to, to cover as well. Indeed. Uh, Quinton, what do you remember of the time? Um, so I was only 21 at the time, uh, so I was just enjoying summer holidays uh, between Paris and Corsica uh, because I was in my journalism school and uh, I was hoping to cover World Cup a few years later. And here you are. Here you are, <laughs> ready, ready to cover one. Uh, Jack, what do you remember of the time? Uh, so this was my first World Cup working for 90 men and also living in England and, you know, being... Irish and being an Ireland fan and wanting England to not do well, and this being the first tournament that I was in England, it was it was trying times. We'll put it that way. It was very trying times. <laughs> Jack, are you not English? <laughs> <laughs> I don't, do you not tell by the accent. No. 
Uh, that worries me if I if I start starting English because I've been here <laughs> five years. And most thing I've been like, I can't go home with an English accent. If I go home with an English accent, I'm a dead man, basically. So. <laughs> <laughs> well, of course, as mentioned, Russia were the host nation. Uh, obviously, there's there's a, a million and one reasons now why that couldn't happen. Uh, but at the time, Andy, what do you remember of the build up to the competition? Because I remember there being a lot of talk about how Russia wasn't the best place for this and and how there could potentially be issues. Um, you know, it, it turned out to be pretty much fine. I've got to say, and you can probably answer that better having been there. But there was even back then, even back in 2018, there was some apprehension about the tournament taking place in Russia. Yeah, there was, and not entirely unfounded. I mean, I don't want to go too deep into the, the geopolitics of it, but obviously uh, the stuff with Ukraine and Crimea had started several years before. I mean, I think that started in, with the annexation of Crimea was in 2014. Uh, so there were there were grounds for concern about, about Russia hosting a tournament. And um, in the build-up, I remember a lot of the English press in particular were sort of very wary of fans going over and, and getting sort of attacked by uh, gangs of... Uh, Russian hooligans and things and I remember like the scare campaign of videos in the Daily Mail or whatever just showing these like really scary looking Russian men just waiting for English people and I think it kind of it did have an impact because when I was out there there was it was noticeable how few England fans there were just on the streets and the majority of the fans who did travel tended to be sort of South American or, or Mexican really and I mean, we'll get onto it later, but particularly when there were games like the England-Columbia game in the last 16, it felt like a home game for Colombia. The absence of, of England fans was so notable. Indeed. Uh, Jack, this was the first World Cup with VAR. And, you know, at the time, we, we didn't really know what to expect. We weren't sure how this was going to be implemented. What do you remember of how VAR was applied during this World Cup? Because there were some highs, but there were some lows as well. Overall, I remember like enjoying it to be honest i don't know if it was like a novelty factor of it first time ever and and seeing it just kind of the workings of it and you know at that time there's like two or three minute delays but it was exciting for some reason but now we're like four or five years and they have var in the game and it's not got better it seems to have like gotten worse in a lot of instances and so that novelty is very very much worn off now so it has Quinton, what do you remember of the introduction of VAR? Was you happy to see it on the biggest stage? No, not at all. Um, I wasn't a fan of uh, VAR because I thought uh, referees are part of the game. So if they make errors, it's like defenders making an error. So it's absolutely fine with me. Uh, so I was not really convinced with VAR. Um, but I thought during the tournament, uh, if I'm honest, it was okay. Um, there was not big issues with uh, VAR like we can see uh, recently with the Premier League. Uh, I think it's getting worse, as uh, Jack mentioned, um, now that it was at the time. Um, I think it was part of the of the build-up of the of the how could you say it the stress uh, with the the fans. So I thought it was okay uh, during the tournament. Yeah, as I mentioned, it was mostly good. There were a couple of decisions I remember. There was one involving Cristiano Ronaldo. I think, was it against Iran? I want to say, was it? I'm just trying to think. But there was an incident involving Cristiano Ronaldo. Yeah, it was against Iran, um, where I thought that Cristiano Ronaldo got away with one, could have been uh, in a spot of bother. And I was shocked that the VAR didn't actually uh, come to a different decision there. But yeah, largely positive. Uh, the in famous terms of, one, yeah. oh, sorry, Harry, the famous mm. one was also, I remember that, because that group, I think that was group B, was it went down to the wire in the last 
uh, yeah. uh, last round of fixtures. And it was uh, Portugal versus Iran. And the other game was Morocco-Spain. And uh, I remember there were a lot of controversial decisions in that game. And it was famously Nordine Amrabat like, went up to the camera after the game and, and said like uh, very strongly what his feelings on VAR were down the lens. I don't know if I can swear on this podcast, <laughs> but uh, I think you will sort of know or remember roughly what he, what he said anyway. Yep, absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, let's go into some of the pre-tournament expectations then. Where was people's heads at going into the competition? Uh, Brazil were the favourites at 9-2. to two. Germany were second favourites at 19-4. to four. Spain, third favourites at 6-1. to one. And France were at 13-2. to two. Uh, Quinton, so fourth favourites, France. Was that the opinion of the French supporters as well? Or did you have higher expectations maybe than what the bookmakers did? Um, I think for everyone in France, France was part of the of the favorites in the tournament. Uh, maybe not the first one because Brazil had a very very good team uh, and Spain as well. Um, but I would say that France was maybe the third favorite in France. Um, and actually, we had a very good team uh, on paper and also like very promising talents like Mbappe. So I would place France as third favorite in this tournament. Brilliant. Um, Andy, what do you remember of sort of the expectations around England? They were priced at 18 to 1 going into the tournament, which is probably as big as they've maybe ever been priced in a World Cup. It, I'm just obviously thinking out loud, but you know, I haven't got the stats yeah. to back that up. But 18 to 1 is huge. It wouldn't surprise me because ten, generally England's odds tend to be sort of shorter than they should be. And maybe in this one, it, it went a little bit the other way. But if you sort of remember the headspace that everyone was in back at, at this time, it was no one was really very positive at all about the England team. Like there wasn't really a lot of faith in, in Gareth Southgate's ability to sort of take this team to the next level. He hadn't had very much experience besides the job at uh, Middlesbrough and, and working with the FA. The team was very young. There was some talent there, but it was a, kind of a, this mismatch of, of, of players that you didn't really know what they could do. And um, yeah, I mean, personally, I think I think a lot of people just sort of hoped England didn't embarrass themselves after 2014 when it was uh, it was just one of the worst England displays of, of all time at a World Cup. And then following that up with the defeat to Iceland in Euro 2016, it was just I think England fans were sort of a, a near all time low, really. Yeah, I certainly agree. Uh, going into the group stages, uh, Jack, the host nation uh, took on, of course, uh, Uruguay, Saudi Arabia and Egypt in their group. And Russia uh, went through 5-0 win over Saudi Arabia, 3-1 win over Egypt. Um, I remember one player in particular kind of stepping up for Russia who I didn't know an awful lot about pre-tournament. And that was Artem Zuba, the big striker who uh, had a massive impact in this competition, didn't he? But the Russians had some some decent players all over the park. Yeah, like I think a lot of players in this tournament really um, played well, well, well above themselves. And I know there's been a lot of uh, theories as to why, we'll put it that way. Um, but yeah, guys like Zuba, like Denis Cheryshev was like top five players in the tournament out of nowhere. Uh, wasn't a particularly great player prior to this. And I think that's what it takes for... Um, a team like Russia, they do well in tournaments. It is these players just coming good at the right time and form at the right time. And it also kind of helped by, look, they weren't in the greatest group here. They finished second in this group behind Uruguay, who were kind of in a transition phase between generations. Like, they're a lot better now than they were in 2018. They're a lot better in 2014 than they are in 2018. And Saudi Arabia, not a great team. And then Egypt, like, wholly reliant on Mohamed Salah. Mohamed Salah just coming off the back of that injury and, 
you know, just not fully fit. I think he missed the first game through injury, which they lost. And then next game's against Russia here, coming off the back of, of a 5 0 one against Saudi Arabia, and you're fighting uphill from there. But, yeah, look, Russia played well. I know the first game was, um, I guess, the highest uh, margin of one ever by a host nation in the first game. So they got off on the right foot and progressed through the tournament in the same manner. Andy, Group B included Spain and Portugal. We've already referenced that group, uh, but there was maybe the match of the tournament in this group, uh, Spain and Portugal, 3-3. What were your kind of memories of that? Uh, yeah, I remember having a couple of really outstanding goals from uh, Nacho and then and then Ronaldo's free kick as well to make it to make it 3-3. I think that was, was that just the second day of the tournament as well? And then having had um, Russia beating Saudi Arabia so convincingly, in the first day, it just it felt like, oh my god, the tournament is here. This is going to be a really, really good World Cup, and I mean, maybe it didn't stay at those quite so high octane levels, but it really, really was quite um, sort of a really fun World Cup. As often these things, they take a little while to get going, or they peter out after a few good games. But I felt like the the intensity of this World Cup just just kind of didn't let off, and there were sort of great games, great goals, and lots of incidents, which is which is really what you what you want from a World Cup. Quinton, France won their group. They were in Group C with Denmark, Peru and Australia. But it's fair to say that France hadn't clicked into top gear just yet. They they made their way through, but they'd only scored three goals um, in, in the group stages, one of which was an own goal. Yeah, absolutely. It was a very disappointing um, first round for France, I think. Uh, during the first game against Australia, players were um, a bit paralyzed by the 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 goals uh, and they they couldn't really um find their way to 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 the tournament they they were like very shy um very um calm on the ball but they didn't take any risk uh to get up front so it was a difficult start as well uh with australia um uh with Without this goal of uh, Pogba, I think um, it would have changed the tournament for France. Maybe France wouldn't have get to this stage of the uh, the tournament. Um, I think the game against Denmark was maybe the big one uh, because without a win, France wouldn't have get to the the next stage. Um, so this game was really important to the build up for France. Um, without without this game, maybe France wouldn't have progress to the round of 16 potentially so Andy um, France weren't the only big nation that that struggled a little bit in the group stages Argentina uh, just about scraped through as well they were beaten comprehensively by a Croatian side 3-0 that went on to win that group um, where are you at with the World Cup so you one of those people that's been sitting there going come on Lionel Messi I just want you to do it just to kind of cap off your legacy or or do you actually quite enjoy watching them fail and struggle? <laughs> uh, I know somebody else on this uh, podcast has a very strong view about this, but I'll let him speak for himself. I think earlier, maybe earlier in his career, I was quite sort of, I was backing Messi to sort of do well. And maybe at the time when when Barcelona was sort of all conquering, if they'd have won in 2010 or 2014, I would have thought, yeah, fair enough. But by this stage, I think it was just that Argentina team looked a bit sad and really not very impressive. And when they got sort of handily beaten by Croatia, it was like, yeah, I'm, I'm not really, I'm not having this team really messy or not. And I think this was also in the group where um, 
uh, Messi had a penalty saved against Iceland as well. Am I correct there? Uh, so yeah, what a couple of years that they had after after their Euros, and then uh, and then I mean obviously they they think they finished bottom of their group in in 2018, but still they they put in some relatively impressive displays. Who who's got that strong opinion then? Is it you, Jack? Gone. <laughs> yeah, it's like he's referring to me here. Yeah, like that Argentina team. I remember their qualification; they weren't impressive. They just about even qualified for the World Cup. So, um, I think expectations need to be tempered for this Argentina team going up the tournament. But obviously, it's Lionel Messi, and a lot's expected. I think um, what Andy's referring to is um, one thing I always bring up when we're talking is. Um, the fact that Messi is yet they score a knockout round goal at a World Cup, which is incredible considering he's played at every World Cup since 2006. And uh, we were going through um, the 2010 World Cup the other day and found out that Matty Upson has actually scored more knockout round goals in World Cups than Lionel Messi. So I think, like, look, he, he played really well in these group stages. So he did. I think he's he is the reason why they got through. And in 2014, same thing. He was exceptional in the group stages. Um but look, to be honest, I think um, his performance in knockout round games has lacked something, um, and he's not perhaps performed to the expectations and the level that we're perhaps expecting to in those games. Quinton, you miss, uh, you mentioned earlier that Brazil had a really strong team. They won their group, uh, and it was a tricky group with Switzerland, Serbia, and Costa Rica, but I'm assuming you weren't surprised to see them uh, essentially make their way through to the knockout stages. No, not at all. But at the same time, I think uh, this Brazil team wasn't impressive at all on the pitch. Uh, on paper, they had one of the best teams of the tournament. But on the pitch, it was a, a whole different story. Um, and I thought uh, this Brazil team had something, but they were missing uh, this goal scorer. They were missing uh, this midfielder that would calm uh, the game and help them to 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 reach the, the, the higher uh, levels. So, yeah, I, I was very impressed uh, during the game against Serbia, mainly, uh, because it was a proper, uh, I'm not sure if it's the right word, but correct me if I'm wrong, uh, a sort of war on the pitch uh, where there was like a proper battle in midfield. Uh, and I thought Serbia had a better midfield than uh, Brazil, which was setting the tone for the rest of the tournament, I thought, for Brazil. Indeed. Um, Group F, Andy, Germany finished rock bottom. I don't think many people saw that coming. Uh, No, probably not, because I think we've talked on previous episodes of this podcast about that curse of the winners. I can't remember how many tournaments it's been exactly, but basically since France 98, the winners have seemed to have gone out in in the group stage in the next tournament. And you'd kind of think that Germany being Germany would be sort of immune to that, but they, they really weren't. Um, and I think actually this uh, this group had my uh, favourite game of the tournament, which was Mexico uh, beating Germany, uh, because it was I think it was the first uh, Germany Mexico's first game of the tournament, and it was just such a shock. You didn't expect to see Germany sort of I mean not don- dominated, but just sort of taken advantage of in that way. And um, the Mexico fans were so sort of vibrant and fantastic at that tournament. It was great to see them have that have that moment as well. And the really fun piece of trivia as well from that game is that uh, when Lozano scored, uh, there was such big celebrations back in Mexico City that it caused a small earthquake and it actually <laughs> registered on the Richter scale in Mexico, which is pretty amazing. Uh, so Herving Lozano now for the rest of his life can say that he caused an earthquake. 
but yeah, Germany were really, really poor. Um, but it was it was nice to see um, sort of like Mexico and South Korea get those results over them as well because those were two of the best games of the of the group stages. It's kind of what you look for in a World Cup, isn't it? Obviously, you want the big nations there and, and you want them often to go far because it makes for better football later on in the competition. But when you get those magical stories, unfancied sides finding a way through, finding a way to pick up results, obviously, that is uh, amazing too. Uh, Andy, I'll stick with you just on the England point because England finished second in Group G. You mentioned that expectations weren't very high going into the competition. And I think... At the point of the end of the group stage, people thought that that was justified, given England had done the job, but not in an impressive fashion, shall we say? Yeah, it felt like a very Englandy group stage. Uh, like you play against Tunisia, a team that you're very heavily expected to beat, and really, really labour to a to a late win there, thanks to thanks to Harry Kane, and I think very late on, I can't remember when the actual goal was. Uh, and then beating Panama very, very convincingly, but again, I mean, you'd be expected to do that. And then getting beaten by a Belgian team that they would expect to lose to, so there weren't really any shocks from that. I mean, the, the good thing was getting through it without embarrassing themselves. But I don't think we really learned very much about England in that group stage, uh, except that Harry Kane was sort of already on course to become the, the Golden Boot winner, thanks to uh, thanks to Panama. <laughs> Indeed. Um, just noting as well that Belgium were the highest goal scorers in the group stages with nine goals in three games, averaging three a game, which is very, very impressive. Uh, Jack, I'll come to you on Group H. Not the the most stunning group. Colombia and Japan uh, found their way through to the knockout stages. But in the notes, you put a Europa League level group at an international tournament. Uh, Do you want to defend those comments in case there's any Colombians or uh, Japanese listeners who are (laughs) not happy about that? Yeah, well, I just think, like, looking at that group, it reminds me of, um, like, Tottenham's group and the Champions League this season where all the teams are kind of the same sort of level like average. not quite good enough to go particularly far <laughs> average yeah not quite good enough to go particularly far in a tournament there's no one in this group that you would have you would have fancied coming out of the group stages to be getting quarterfinal semi-final by any means um, look Colombia were still kind of right in the wave of 2014 Hamas Rodriguez was still performing at a decent level for them and so if he wasn't particularly doing the same at club level um and yeah, Japan had some quality players. Um, Senegal and Poland, perhaps quite disappointed, particularly Poland, who have Lewandowski up front. And it feels like at international level, if you kind of have one player that good, then you're kind of expected to do something, at least get out of the group stages, and he didn't do it, so he didn't. But yeah, not not one, not a group stage, not a group that I'll remember fondly in any way, and I don't think anyone else will, unless you're Colombian. Well, do you remember the really fun thing from this group was that Senegal got eliminated on fair play, which is the first time that's ever, ever happened in a World Cup because they finished level with Japan on every single metric and it came down to a number of yellow cards, which seems really, really cruel. But um, yeah. Fair play. Oh, my God. Unbelievable. I'd, I'd forgotten about that until you just brought it up and it just reminded me how ridiculous that is. Uh, round of 16, uh, France took on Argentina in what was... I said that there was another game earlier in the competition that was one of the games of the tournament, but I think it's fair to say that this was the very best. Uh, France 4, Argentina 3. Uh, Quinton, what do you remember of this? Oh, it was an unreal moment. Uh, very tense um, I thought like during the first few minutes, uh, France didn't start really well, but got very lucky with the first goal. Um, and then 
all of a sudden, um, nothing else. Uh, Argentina played really well in this game. Uh, they scored a stunning goal, uh, which has been unnoticed with uh, with uh, Di Maria, uh, and then took the lead. And then at this point, I was just thinking, like, that's it, we are out. Uh, against a very poor Argentina overall during the tournament, but not on this game. Um, and then Mbappé, Mbappé. And that's all I can say. Uh, Mbappé showed his class during the, the World Game and he built his legacy thanks to thanks to this game. Um, and then there's this fantastic volley from uh, Benjamin Pavard uh, that you will obviously remember, I think, because it was a voted goal of the tournament. Uh, but unreal game uh, and then at the end with the third goal from uh, from Argentina I thought oh my that might be played during extra time or something like that or maybe penalty shootout and it would have been very cruel but overall it was like a fantastic game and I remember the celebrations in France after this game were more or less the same as if as if we won the, the World Cup basically it's a bit Tottenham isn't it to Celebrate a round of 16 <laughs> tyres if you won a trophy. Uh, the Jack, difference you... is that we won it. That's <laughs> true. <laughs> true. Uh, Jack, do you think that this was the, the, the point at which the rest of the world stood up and took notice of Kylian Mbappe? I mean, this day and age, we do have access to a lot more than we did in the past. And we're, I'd say, better educated about players in other countries than we've ever been in the past. But this was the game, I think, that Kylian Mbappe really sort of made his name where people outside of France and maybe outside of Europe as well looked on and went, you know what, this guy's special. What do you remember of sort of his impact and the reaction to that performance? Yeah, I think it's just breaking. It's kind of, I think what people need to remember is it's, look, it's great when he scores great goals for Monaco against Man City in the Champions League and things like that and puts up great numbers in Ligue 1 and all. Like, um, when you're in football and, and a football fan, you notice those things. And I think everyone here and everyone probably listening to this podcast realized how great a player he was. Like, what I remember seeing him for the first time at Monaco in the Champions League and thinking he was the best young player I'd seen since Messi broke on this scene in 2006. And I'm sure a lot of other people felt the same way about him with that explosiveness and, and clinicalness in front of goal. But this is kind of the type of game that when you have the whole world watching, of non-football fans watch the World Cup and things like that so scoring goals in these games are the ones that people remember and the one that matters and I think like long term like he could go on and, and he'll be one of the top scorers in Champions League history he'll probably won quite a few other trophies uh, throughout his career but I think in 10-15 years time this is the sort of moments that I'll be remembered for scoring these two goals being becoming the youngest player um, since Pelé they score in the World Cup final and things like that. It's it's where players go from being great footballers and big on the football scene to becoming like mainstream stars. And this is when Mbappe did that. Andy, if I take it on to Uruguay, Portugal, it finished Uruguay 2, Portugal nil. So that meant that at this point, both Cristiano Ronaldo and Lionel Messi were out of the competition in the yep. round of 16. Was this a moment for you where you started to think, you know what, that they are two of the greatest ever. There's no question about that. But maybe, just maybe, we're starting to move on or, or they're starting to enter a different part of their careers where they're not so dominant and actually the teams that they play in have now become fallible as a result. Yeah, I think it did feel kind of quite symbolic. And especially as Jack and Quentin were just talking about the, the France-Argentina game, 
I remember very clearly in, in the newspapers the next day, they all used this image of Mbappe celebrating with sort of Messi commiserating in the background. And the fact that that Mbappe game had happened uh, in the game against Messi, it, did, it kind of felt like a sort of passing of the baton. And I guess it hasn't really quite worked out like that. I mean, Messi's obviously still doing incredibly well. Ronaldo's still around. But this did feel at the time like we're kind of moving away from that Messi-Ronaldo uh, era. And I remember, I don't know if it was after um, the Uruguay game or certainly one of the other games of the tournament, Ronaldo sort of hinted that this wouldn't be his last World Cup. And he was saying that, no, I'll be back for 2022 and possibly even for the, for the America one as well. And at the time, everyone sort of laughed at that and sort of thought, sort of, no, that's, that's kind of ridiculous. But you kind of look at what he's doing now and you think like, I think he probably will hang on actually for another, <laughs> for another four years, uh, regardless of where he is. I can see him doing a Pepe and playing at a World Cup when he's 41. But it's going to be a very different, a bit, very different Ronaldo, I imagine. But yeah, this might have been the last, uh, the last tournament for them in their prime to have, uh, to have done something special. And it just it didn't happen for better or for worse. Yeah, you mentioned the word symbolic. I think that that's the right word. If you'd have told me that, you know, a few years later, though, that the only headlines that Cristiano Ronaldo would be making would be in interviews with Piers Morgan. I wouldn't have <laughs> believed that. But here we are. Uh, strange times. Um, Jack, Spain uh, were beaten by Russia on penalties. Russia continuing the trend of host nations generally doing really well at these tournaments. Yeah, generally beaten Spain at some point as well. I think South, South Korea knocked out Spain in 2002 as well. Uh, yeah, it's just look like Russia, kind of the complete opposite in every way. The uh, Spain team, Spain, usually quite small midfielders, pass the ball about, play nice football. This Russia team was like a purely physical team. They fit up to your 8 foot 10 strikers, Yuba, and just hope a knockdown comes down and hopefully get a goal from that and that it, it works sometimes it just works and this tournament that it, it somehow works so it does can i just say on that as well after that game the atmosphere in moscow was absolutely electric to be fair um like in the earlier stages because there weren't quite as many traveling fans it was didn't kind of have that that full world cup feel and even on some days they would shut down red square and you couldn't sort of go in so it was kind of it was weird you didn't really know where you were supposed to be congregating as a fan but after that game, um, there were just the streets were full, everyone like in traffic jams, just honking their horns on top of their cars and stuff. And it, you, you sort of really felt like you were in a World Cup host nation at that point, to be fair to them. Elsewhere, at Croatia beat Denmark on penalties. Denmark missing three of their five penalty kicks in that shootout. Brazil uh, putting Mexico to bed with a 2-0 win. Firmino and Neymar with the goals. Uh, Sweden beat Switzerland by a goal to nil. Forsberg with the winner Belgium uh, beating Japan by three goals to two. Another really incredibly entertaining game, which ended with Tottenham Hotspur legend Nasser Chadley scoring a dramatic 94th minute counter-attack winner. Um, but let's do Colombia against England. England's first ever World Cup penalty shootout win. And that awful football's coming home song started, Andy. <laughs> <laughs> is that your opinion? I mean, I'm still it's in the camp shocking. that quite likes it. It's right, we, won't, we won't devolve into that because that would just take over the entire podcast. Um, but I will say that I was I was there in the stadium and it was probably the best game I've ever been to. Um, not because of the actual football on the pitch. It was a bit of, it was kind of dreadful. A lot of the parts, very stop start, a lot of horrible fouls and uh, sort of dark arts being employed all over the pitch. 
but just in terms of atmosphere, I mentioned before that it was kind of like an away game. There were so many uh, Colombians and other South Americans dominating the stadium. And just to get that real World Cup vibe and then see it go all the way to the penalty shootout and England to actually win a penalty shootout was um, was pretty, pretty incredible. And I remember like afterwards and during the game as well, just sort of going on about how sort of dirty the Columbia team was. And it was being sort of backed up by, you know, everything that everyone I was talking to and on social media. But then when you looked the next day at the sort of reports coming from South America and other parts of the world, a lot of them were blaming England. So I guess I, I don't really have a very neutral perspective on this, but I don't know if it was both teams just really going at it or if there was one team that kind of instigated it or what. But it was a sort of very, uh, it was a game of bad blood, but I'm, 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 and it could have gone either way. I remember Jordan Pickford made that fantastic save uh, right at the end as well. But um, yeah, it was it was it was a great game to to be at as an England fan and, and properly historic as well. Yeah, indeed. Um, I know we said we won't get into footballs coming home, but Quinton, as a Frenchman, can you describe footballs coming home in one word? Um, funny. <laughs> Jack, as an Irishman. <laughs> um, irritant. <laughs> Nice one, guys. Uh, let's take it on then to the quarterfinals. So the lineup included Uruguay, France, Brazil, Belgium, Sweden, England, Russia and Croatia. Um, Quinton, France taking on a Uruguay side that I don't think we're at their peak at this point, but still a good team on paper with a lot of experienced uh, campaigners who, who a lot of them played in Europe and and for some very big clubs. So this had the potential to be a banana skin. But Antoine Griezmann made sure it wasn't. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I thought before the game, this was a tricky game uh, to play because, you know, when you win in a big game, the game after, you don't perform the same way. Um, and during this game, I thought maybe France could go out and it would be like a very disappointing performance because, as you mentioned, this Uruguay side, even if they had a very good squad uh, with experienced player. They didn't have like a proper team that was built to win the tournament. And um, yeah, I thought France played really well. Um, and you could see how experienced this France side was because they won thanks to individual performances, but also by calming the game when it was needed, by playing very uh, high on the pitch when it was needed, and by not, um, not um, playing like the mind games with the Uruguayan side because they tried to uh, for like 15, yeah. 20 minutes and France didn't fall into the trap. And I thought this was a very, very promising performance. I think, I don't want to generalize, but Andy mentioned the the Colombians and, and the way they sort of approached the game against England. Uruguay are a team that you could paint with a similar brush in that they do like that side of things when it's not going their way in terms of the football, that gamesmanship starts to come through. And listen, I'm not knocking it. It's part of football. Uh, but yeah, you, you're right to say that there was a bit of a worry and concern that Uruguay could almost lure you into something like that and then take advantage of it. Um, Jack, Brazil uh, played Belgium. And uh, this was arguably the golden generation's biggest ever win. Yeah, I think this is it's certainly the best I've ever seen a Belgium team play. I think everything really, really came together at this moment. Um, 
like you had Hazard and De Bruyne in outstanding form, particularly De Bruyne, who scored a great goal in this game. And defensively, company and co really, really stepped up. And you also had, I think, one of the issues with um, Belgium uh, throughout the last like four or five tournaments when you've had this golden generation is there's always been like one or two players that made you feel quite uncomfortable in the starting 11. Like, I think the one that comes to mind from this tournament is Thomas Munier, who's not exactly the greatest footballer in the world, we'll put it that way. Um, but yeah, he, he played really, really well in games like this and really, really stepped up. So at this point, um, I had thought that France were going to win the tournament from, from the start. I just thought they had the experience and the quality and I was really high on Mbappe at this time. Um, but after seeing this Brazil-Belgium game, um, I started to think, you know, could, could be Belgium that do it. Yep, indeed. Um, Andy, were you convinced by Belgium at this point that they could maybe do this? Because, again, we talk about that golden generation, but there's a lot of nations that have had amazing teams that have just never gone on to fulfil that potential. Did this make you start to believe? Yeah, I did, actually. I don't know if I sort of had them as the as the favourite, but, I mean, they were very, very good. And you look at that team now, and a lot of those players are still in the in the squad or going to the World Cup this time, four and a half years later, and they don't look anywhere near as good. I mean, there's a lot more sort of wear on the tyres now. But back then, I mean, there were a lot of sort of the best players in the world, really. And if you look at that semi-final, you think that probably should have been, I mean, we'll get onto it, but that probably should have been the final. And if uh, if Belgium had sort of maybe decided to throw their group game against England, they could have been in a much easier side of the draw and, and made it to the final. But... Um, I mean, I guess that's not really the, the spirit of the way things are played, but I mean, it could have worked out differently for them had the had the had the draw gone another way, and they hadn't faced uh, hadn't faced France in the semis. I'll stick with you, uh, Andy, because uh, England took part in um, you know a quarter final that had the potential to put them in the semi final for the first time since 1990, and uh, Deli Ali was one of the goal scorers. What on earth has happened there since? Yeah, oh my God. We've mentioned Tottenham a lot on this part already. It feels yeah. like we sort of a lot of subtle digs going on from you, Harry. But um... Mate, they just they come naturally to me. <laughs> I'm sorry, naturally. I can't help it. <laughs> uh, yeah, well, I mean, I guess this kind of always happens. But when you look back at the England squad now, it looks bizarre because they had Lingard and Ali starting, Ashley Young at left back, uh, Delph's there, Phil Jones is there. I mean, I know Loftus had a little bit of a resurgence, but he's there. Jack Butland's one of the goalkeepers, Welbeck. I mean, it doesn't look like a World Cup semi-final team, but fair play to them. I mean, they did they did really well. And this was a really strange one in that England were going into a quarterfinal. They were fully expected to win. And I mean, that's not happened. Uh, it hadn't happened before in, in my lifetime. So there's sort of a lot of sort of trepidation going into it being like, are we allowed to feel confident in this position? I mean, and then... And then when the game actually kicked off and England did play in that kind of front foot dominant way and they were always, always going to win that game. And I remember, um, I remember Jordan Pickford did, did have to make a couple of good saves, but England were, were clearly the better team. Um, it wasn't quite as, I mean, the really iconic performances is Colombia, obviously, because of the penalty shootout. But, yeah, I mean, you could argue that this is, I mean, just a significant result in, in England's World Cup of history, really. Jack, um, the hosts were knocked out at the quarterfinal stage by a Croatian side who were, were getting through on penalties at the time. They got through the previous round on penalties as well. But I want to I talk a little bit about this Croatian side because they were a top, top side, as we saw later on in the tournament. Um, but I feel like because of the nature of their progress uh, in the earlier rounds, 
maybe they just went under the radar a little bit until they got to the semi-final stage. Yeah, I think um, as you were talking about golden generations like Belgians, for example, I feel like this kind of run was coming for Croatia for quite a long time. I remember in like Euro 2008 being quite excited about them. I think Modric just signed for Tottenham at that time was very highly rated. Rakitic was coming through at Schalke and things. And this is kind of the 2018 tournament was the one where, yeah, they'd had um, failures before in tournaments, but every player, it felt like all their main players, your Mandzukic and Modric and Rakitic and all, they'd all been there and done it at club level in some way. It all played in Champions League finals. It all won big games. And it felt like it was kind of the right time where they all had the experience and matching that with the quality that they all had, they really come through. I remember being like super impressed with Croatia during the group stages. I remember loving their away kit. I thought they had like the best kit at the tournament saluted and they wore it a lot, which was great. Made me want to support them. Um, and yeah, it was, look, against Denmark, um, you would probably put Denmark and Croatia pretty even keel in terms of talent and ability. And they just about made their way through that. And then I think it was for the good of the tournament then they have them beating Russia, to be honest. I know the atmosphere, like you were saying, Andy, was great after the Spain game and things like that. But for um, the quality of the semifinals, um, it was better to have players like Luka Modric in there instead of Sheroshev, uh, for example. Indeed. Uh, let's take it on then. Semifinals, Quinton, France versus Belgium. And local rivalry as well. Yeah, exactly. That was a very tense game because we have a special relationship with uh, with Belgium. Uh, we are very close, but at the same time, we we <laughs> we try to always uh, make jokes out of them. Uh, but it was a very difficult game, a very difficult game, a very nervy game as well. Uh, when you were a fan and watching the, the TV, it was a bit uh, tensey. Um, but it, overall, I thought we we spoke about experience earlier in the game. I thought this was a proper experience win uh, because we we don't have like we didn't have at the time uh, very experienced players in terms of um, uh, age, both in terms of um, um, uh, experience with their clubs. Uh, but I thought this side was really built to win something, um, and th there was nothing going on. Basically, it was a very poor game. Uh, but the defensive side of France was really good. Uh, it's this kind of games, you know, when you when you play in Stoke back in the days, uh, you, you were seeing like uh, closed gates and you couldn't do anything. And uh, and this was basically the France uh, strategic in this game. Uh, Didier Deschamps asked to 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 defend really um, uh, deep on the pitch, and and then there was this corner kick. We scored it thanks to Umtiti, and it was it. Job done. That was it, that was it indeed. Um, Andy, talk to us about England's semi-final heartbreak. Um, and it all started so well. Yeah, I mean, do I have to? I mean, we all kind of know what happened here, don't we? Um, yeah, it did It did start very well. Um, I kind of I mentioned that we were, didn't know whether we were allowed to feel confident going into the Sweden game. And I think maybe we'd kind of been lulled into a false sense of security by that. Because I remember sort of thinking ahead of the Croatia game that England were the favourites for this. And Croatia had just gone through two penalty shootouts back to back and had played like a lot more minutes of football than England. So then and there was a lot of sort of discourse about whether Croatia would be tired for this game, which sort of didn't turn out to be the case at all. Because as the game sort of wore on, they sort of grew into it more and more. 
and I just remember sort of Modric and Rakitic just sort of having put him on a passing clinic that England sort of couldn't get near, especially in the sort of the second half and, and into the extra time as well. And to be totally fair to them, they they deserve they totally deserved the the win by the end of it. But it was it was kind of a shame just to see. And we saw a similar thing again in the Euros final, England sort of starting so well and looking really good for about sort of 30, 40, 45 minutes, but then sort of the sand running out of the egg timer a bit and just things getting worse and worse and worse until it all sort of uh, fell apart. But you can't have too many complaints as an England fan because that was probably beyond their ceiling in this tournament, whereas maybe at Euro 2020, there was an opportunity there to go a little bit further. But here, everything sort of beyond... The knockout stages just felt like a bonus and it felt like a really fun ride. And I remember sort of leaving the stadium for this and going back to the uh, to the Metro and the England fans just sort of being really um, magnanimous and, and really well behaved. And I remember like some Croatia fans just sort of trying to provoke some England fans just by going up to them and shouting, it's coming home, it's coming home in, in their face. And, and England fans just being like, yeah, fair play, you won. <laughs> and it was it was kind of it was really nice to see that, you know, from England fans because they have such a bad reputation. But um it felt like, I mean, it was a sort of a, the capping of a really sort of well-behaved tournament for England on and off the pitch, I think. Quinton, when obviously you look at that other semi-final, Croatia, England, who did you want to face? Who would you have preferred to face at that point? Because that Croatian side on paper was very strong and very good and had gone much further in the tournament than a lot of people expected. England, they'd kind of been stuttering through. So had Croatia to a point. But Andy's already mentioned that that England squad was nowhere near the level that it maybe is today. So what was your feeling going into um, that game? Who who did you prefer to come up against in the final? You know what? I, I always wanted to face uh, Croatia because I thought we had better chances to win against uh, Croatia more than against England. I don't know why I, I always hate to play England because I'm always scared of how England can step up their game. Uh, it happens in rugby, it happens in football, it happens in every single sport you can mention. Uh, and, and I really don't, do not want it to face uh, England in the final. So here we are, World Cup final, France versus Croatia, the highest scoring World Cup final since 1966. And we talked about Kylian Mbappe earlier, Quinton. He uh, did not disappoint. He continued to impress on what is undoubtedly the world's biggest stage. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I thought uh, Kylian Mbappé scored massive points in this game uh, in the spirit of the people. Uh, he, he literally showed everyone that he was built for this kind of moments, for this kind of big big games and to shine on the on the best stage ever, which is the World Cup final. Um, I think this, this final was very tense at the beginning. Uh, I did not want it to to face uh, uh, this moment because I, I, as a kid, I remember 2006 and uh, it wasn't a very pleasing moment. Um, but yeah, th- this final was really good for us as a fans because we scored uh, very early in the game and then it was a goal fest. And when we scored the fourth goal, we had like 30 minutes of excitement. Like we, we were enjoying them, uh, ourselves because we knew this was for us, basically. So it was a very calm uh, final for us. We just waited. We were just waiting for the final whistle to be blown, and and that was it. Basically, it was a very enjoyable moment compared to uh, other finals. Uh, I can remember, for example, I wouldn't have wanted my team to be in the 
2010 uh, final, uh, 2014 final, sorry. Jack, Paul Pogba had a really good final and a really good tournament, didn't he? And as someone who follows Juventus very closely, you knew that Paul Pogba had it in him. But since joining Manchester United, that didn't really happen. We never really saw it and, and people were very critical of him. Was there a part of you that quite enjoyed Paul Pogba going into a World Cup final, performing and almost silencing some of those critics? Yeah, there was because um, I've gone first broke through at Juventus. Um, it was so exciting. It was, it was so brilliant, so explosive um, and always came through in big games and things. Um, I always remember when he, when he originally signed for United, uh, and we're thinking, well, he never been a leader of a midfield before. He never really like had his own team or anything. When he was at Juventus, he had the comfort blanket of playing with Pirlo and Marquisio and Vidal. And anytime his game would step down a wee bit when he was a young player, there was someone there to step up in his absence and and perform. And um, I think over time, it's a pity that he never really became that kind of midfield general that. I expected him to become and it was more of a it depended on who he was playing with and what formation they were playing and for example having Kante beside him at this World Cup really let Pogba be Pogba and he never really had that at United and for that reason those club years were kind of lost in a way and um, for how talented he is he never really achieved that much at Man United so it was great to see him come on the World Cup and won a World Cup and look when we're looking back in 30, 40 years' time, people aren't really going to remember those like not-so-great performances at Man United. People, All people really generally remember is the World Cup and the fact that he scored in a World Cup final and has a World Cup winner's medal is really what's going to cement his long-term legacy in the game. Andy, Luka Modric, player of the tournament, Ballon d'Or winner. Was that deserved yeah. in your opinion? What, what do you kind of remember of the final as well, generally speaking? But the Modric thing, I think we have to highlight that because he was outstanding. Yeah, I mean, he was. I mean, I'm just going to tell you quickly my memories. My main memory of the final, thinking about it now, is you remember just after the final whistle, it just started pouring down and when they were giving out the winner's medals and the trophy. And everybody, like uh, the Croatia president and all the players and everybody were getting really wet. But then Putin came out with a guy just holding a little umbrella for him. <laughs> just in the middle of everything. He's the only guy staying, uh, staying dry, uh, which kind of tells you everything you need to know about Vladimir Putin. Uh, but anyway, um, Luka Modric, yeah, I think at the time I was kind of uh, a little bit sort of indifferent to it. And maybe it's just sort of ill feeling because of what happened to England in the semi-finals. But when you sort of look back on it now with a little bit of distance, I think it was... It was fully deserved. So he was the, the the talisman for that team that got them to the got them to the final, and his performances were were truly outstanding. But I think if you'd have if you'd have given um, either player the tournament or certainly the Ballon d'Or to one of the one of the French team, I mean, you look at the, the season that Anton Griezmann had as well. I mean, he was. Uh, I mean, Quentin can tell you a bit more about this, but he was probably France's pivotal player in that tournament. And he had a, he'd come off the back of a really good season at Atletico Madrid, where he won the Europa League as well. And I think he was quite vocal at the time about um, about not winning the Ballon d'Or that year. Um, but yeah, with a little bit of historical perspective and looking at where his career is now and the things that he's he's continued to do. I mean, it's, my God, it's four and a half years since, and Modric is still one of the best midfielders in the world at the age of what thirty-seven now. 
Um, and even just as a sort of lifetime achievement award, I think he kind of he kind of earned that really, particularly in the absence of, uh, of you know, like when there's often a sort of a Ronaldo or, or or a Pele or somebody who comes and dominates the tournament in that way by scoring a load of goals. It wasn't really that at this tournament. And I think uh, creatively, uh, Modric was was outstanding. Indeed, he was. Uh, guys, that brings us to the end. So the final finished up France for Croatia too. I'll let Quinton have the final world as, as world champions. Um, how highly, forget the result, forget that France won it. In terms of the World Cup as a tournament, how highly did this one rank for you? Um, very, very high. I think this was a very interesting tournament with massive surprises, with plenty of teams that we were not picking to be in the maybe semi-finals, for example. Um, this was a very entertaining tournament with plenty of goals, plenty of uh, very good football pl being played uh, and very talented players on the pitch. Uh, and I would place it very high with probably 1998 and 2006, which were, for me, the two best uh, recent World Cups. Guys, how does it rank for you? Uh, I, was, I mean, I'd say, like, when I'm looking back at tournaments, what you want, really, is you want great goals, you want controversy, and you want sort of memeable moments, essentially, for want of a better <laughs> phrase. But um, And this had all three of those in abundance, really. Uh, and I think, I mean, I'm, I'm really nostalgic about France 98, essentially because it was the first World Cup that I can remember. So in my head, that's always kind of like the perfect World Cup. But um, this one and 2014, I think, were the other ones that I really, really enjoyed as just as, as a neutral more than anything, just as a sort of pure football fan. Yep, good stuff. Jack? Yeah. Uh, so I think this one was my favourite one since 2006. I think, as Andy said, it, it had great goals, great games, great moments, uh, great kits, great players. It had a lot of stuff going for it. Um, I think 2006 may always be my favourite because it just how obsessed I was with football at that time and was like 11 years old going into secondary school and it just like the absolute perfect time to be sitting down and watching um, a World Cup. Uh, I'll always have fault memories of 2002 because it may be the only team, the only time I ever see Ireland at a World Cup. Uh, judging by the current team, it probably definitely will. Um, so I'll hold that one in high regard too. So to Still 2006 for me, but yeah, well, definitely one of the better tournaments out of the six that we've covered in this series. For sure. Totally agree. Uh, guys, thank you so much. Thank you, Andy. Thank you, Quinton. Thank you, Jack, uh, for tuning in. Uh, this was uh, the last of our, our World Cups series. So uh, all we can do now is leave you to enjoy the upcoming tournament which kicks off very, very soon. Be sure to subscribe to the 90min podcast feed. Be sure to follow the guys. Their social handles are in the description below. And uh, we'll catch you very, very soon with more content. Until next time, take care. Bet MGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at Bet MGM. Simply download the Bet MGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. 
BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? Hero Bread serves up 0 to 1 grams of net carbs, 5 to 11 grams of protein, and high fiber in every delicious serving. Made with natural ingredients, Hero Bread supports gut health, promotes weight management, and helps maintain blood sugar. Hero also drops other limited edition ultra-low net carb goodies like rich, flaky croissants and buttery brioche slider rolls. Head to Hero.co to shop today.